Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 20A, an interview on Garfield and the Gilded Age with Todd Arrington. I'm excited to welcome Todd Arrington to the show today. Todd is a historian at the James A. Garfield National Historic Site in Mentor, Ohio. He's author of The Last Lincoln Republican, The Presidential Election of 1880, and he's the site manager of possibly the best presidential history Twitter out there at Garfield NPS. Seriously, it is funny, interesting, and compelling. You have to give it a follow. Today, we're going to take a look at why Arrington considers Garfield the last Lincoln Republican, what we lost when he was assassinated, and how the Republican Party and the country were changing in the closing decades of the 19th century. Todd, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. The first question I have to ask is, what inspired your interest in President James Garfield? Well, you know, I'm a, I am a historian, as you mentioned, by training and education, and, and, and my passion has always been the 19th century, specifically 19th century politics, uh, the Civil War era. So Garfield was definitely in my, my wheelhouse of things I was interested in, but I really hadn't spent any time with him or gotten to know anything about him until... Uh, 2009, when, um, of course, I'm a, a career National Park Service employee, and I came to James A. Garfield National Historic Site in Ohio. Um, and again, knowing that this guy was was certainly somebody I, I could I could get very interested in because of the time in which he lived and the and the era in which he was active in in both the military and politics. Um, but I really, you know, got here and had to learn very quickly and and really just got fascinated by him and realized, wow, there's so much more to this guy than people really realize. That is also, so how did you go from there, like finding and discovering and finding an interest to writing a book? I mean, that must have been a cool journey. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, again, you know, I am a historian, even though that that isn't, you know, my specific job here at this at this site. Um, my everything I do is always, of course, going to have a, you know, a, a, mm -hmm. everything I do is always going to have a, a focus on history and really just just trying to figure out who he was and learning more about him. You know, what I knew about Garfield was what everybody else knows. You know, he was president very briefly. He was assassinated. Um, but then doing a little bit more of a deep dive on him to really be able to prepare myself to go out and, and talk to people about mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. um, I started to realize, whoa, you know, there, th this guy's really uh, a major player in 19th century American politics. He's, he's right there in the middle of so many of these major, major issues that, that the country is dealing with. And so starting to learn more about what he believed and, and mm. who he was and, and how he felt about issues like civil rights, which has become, you know, kind of the major focus that I have on Garfield. Um, it, it really just it just fascinated me and eventually led me down this road to to do some deeper research and, and eventually write the book. Awesome. And we are definitely going to dive into civil rights. I want to start at an even higher level. The title of your book, you know, you, The Last Lincoln Republican. What do you mean by that? Well, I, I some have sort of jokingly accused me of saying of of putting Lincoln in the title just because, hey, if you if you mention <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, of course, it's going to sell books. I honestly never really thought of that. But I, I once I realized that I liked it. But in fact, that that, that really wasn't the intention. You know, I, I guess what I mean by that is simply that in in my view, Garfield is the last of kind of the original generation of Republicans to become president. 
Got um, it. And so I just kind of call them Lincoln Republicans because, of course, Lincoln is the first Republican president. Lincoln is the president who eventually signs, you know, leads the country through the Civil War, signs the Emancipation Proclamation, and really brings about the abolition of, of slavery. Um, I, I think the country obviously would have, have been a very different place and been much better served than it was had Lincoln survived and been able to serve his second term and really institute his vision for reconstruction. Obviously that didn't happen. Things got, you know, he was assassinated. Things got very, very, very ugly uh, and bitter. Um, And so really just what I mean by that is simply that, that Garfield is really the last of that, that generation of Republicans that really was, was, was very serious about trying to bring about equality for, uh, for the formerly enslaved people uh, in the South. I'm aware too, you know, some people have sort of raised the issue of Benjamin Harrison, you know, also um, kind of fighting for, for civil rights as president for, for African-Americans, which is true. Um, The reason I really sort of, see Garfield rather than Harrison as that last Lincoln Republican, if you will, is simply, you know, Harrison has some other issues, uh, particularly with American Indian populations that, that, you know, make it a little bit of a harder sell for him on, on civil rights. So yeah, he may have been very, very strong on civil rights for African Americans, but not so much for American Indians. Had Garfield lived, he might too have run into that uh, and, and maybe, who knows, done some things that were, were a little uh, questionable with, with, with natives, but we just don't know because of course he didn't live. So, so anyway, that's where the sort of the, the idea for this, this title, this last Lincoln Republican comes from. Awesome. So, so almost like one of the last founding fathers of the Republican party, you know, seems to be the concept. Sure. Yeah. yeah that's, that's a good way to look at it. You know, you, if you say, you know, I think it's, uh, I guess James Monroe is really the last so-called right. founding father to be president. Yeah. Um, then you could also uh, later that same century, say, you know, Garfield is the last Lincoln Republican, the last of that founding generation of the Republican Party. Awesome. Okay. So it's it's pretty widely accepted that the two parties have evolved, <laughs> you know, over the last 150 something years. Even Ooh, Yes, that's switching, one way to say it. <laughs> yeah. Even switching positions entirely on some key issues like civil rights. So how is the Republican Party before Garfield from different from the one after Garfield? Well, you know, the, the Republican Party obviously was was the, the founding generation of Republicans were about equality, yeah. um, you know, certainly economic equality, equality of opportunity for, mm-hmm. for Americans and to some degree racial equality as well. That's not to say every original Republican was an abolitionist, sure. because sure. we know clearly that they were not. Yeah. Um, we know even Abraham Lincoln had some some you know ideas of you know where he, that he explored colonization for right. example. Lincoln is not a, a you know Lincoln like everybody else is human. He's not right. perfect. Yeah. He evolves too. Um, so you know you know the the party is, but then especially after the Civil War when you get these so called radical Republicans who to me were not really all that radical. Agreed. All they're saying yeah they're all they're saying is. Um, Everybody should have equal rights, including these 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 African-Americans who until recently were enslaved. Um, That's not a radical position, in my view, although I suppose maybe in the in the you know, in the 1860s, it it was a radical position. But anyway, um, um, so, you know, Republicans after the Civil War especially are basically just trying to uh, make the country live up to 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 what it claims to be about. 
That's what Lincoln was saying in the Gettysburg Address. That's what the new birth of freedom is. It's not only freedom of, of, of opportunity for people who had been enslaved. It, it's really making the country live up to what it claims to be about. All men are created equal. Uh, as it says in the Declaration of Independence, the Republicans are trying to get after the Civil War are trying to get the country there. Obviously, they run into a number of 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 brick walls. Right. Um, but, you, you know, by the time Garfield comes along in 1880, you know, he's he's running for president in 1880. Reconstruction, you know, is you know, according to most people is over at that point, I would argue it's not really over even today in 2021, mm -hmm. uh, based on some of the things we did here over the last couple of years. I mean, it, it's really, let's face it, it's still going on. We're still trying to live up to who we claim to be and, and what we, we, we claim that this country is really all about. Um, you know, we, we, yeah. We haven't gotten there yet. I mean, yeah. we've made progress certainly, but we're, we're definitely not all the way there. Um, but anyway, by 1880, you know, at least according to some reconstruction is over and, and really a lot of Republicans, including a lot of former so-called radicals are, are kind of starting to look forward and saying, okay, you know, we, we've, 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 we've fought the civil war, we've freed enslaved people. Um, we have passed reconstruction amendments to the mm -hmm. constitution. We've made the formerly enslaved people citizens, um, we've given them suffrage, the men at least, um, you <laughs> yeah. know, we, we've done enough. We've done everything we can do. Uh, it is time for us as a party to start looking for other issues. This is the major issue we've been arguing about and fighting about for the first nearly 30 years of our existence. It's time to move on to other things. Where are we going to find alliances and, and um, you know, people who will help us uh, promote our party, promote our ideas, but also stay in power. Now, wh why is that happening too? Why are they moving on from these issues and looking for new issues? Was there something happening on the electoral maps or something happening in, with the populace stopping to care? Why is the party changing? Yeah, I think, well, certainly fatigue is, is you know, fatigue with this issue yeah. is a major, is, is a component there. I mean, we can't ignore that, that they, as I said, we, they've been kind of fighting these battles now for go, for. 25 years or more yeah. uh, or 30 years or more close. Um, so I think that's a major issue, but yeah, I think, you know, demographics are shifting. The electoral map is shifting. They're trying to figure out how do we stay in power here? How do we build a base in the South? Is that even possible to, for the Republican party to, to build a base in the South? Um, if we continue, we as Republicans at that point, if we continue to hammer home, uh, ideas about racial equality and, mm -hmm. and promotion of freedom for, for, for African-Americans, that's not going to sell very well in the South. So if we have any hope at all of establishing a base in the South, um, continuing to win elections, appealing to voters in the South, we've got to move on to, to other issues as well. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of it too was about, you know, maybe trying to, 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 broaden their appeal and, and to stay in power. Which is kind of sad, given that like half the South is African-American and you're almost kind right. of writing them. Like some states are majority, if I remember right, African-American, one or two of them. Oh, sure. So yeah, it's kind of a sad And those statement. are Republican voters at this point. Yeah, exactly. You know? so, exactly. Uh, so, but, but then you also, of course, the flip side of that is you have, you know, white Democrats or, or, and white Southerners who are, you know, not shy at all about using violence, oh, using yes. intimidation and yes. trying to keep those Republican, those African-American Republican voters away from the polls. Yeah. But 
you also in 1880 do have some Republicans, James Garfield among the most prominent, that are saying, hey, wait a minute, we, we've, we've not, you know, we've done a lot, but we're not there yet. We can't just write these, these formerly enslaved people off. We can't just move on to bigger and better issues. Mm-hmm. Um, we've still got some work to do in the South and we still have some obligations we need to fulfill. So even though that has really very little to do with why Garfield is you know, selected as a, a compromise candidate in right. 1880, right. I do still think that unbeknownst to them, perhaps the Republicans selected the, the really the guy that I think was exactly who they needed at that point to really remind them who they were. Um, so, and, and that then, of course, compounds the tragedy of, of him being assassinated shortly after becoming president, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and if, if I remember, like in his inaugural address, he talks about civil rights being one of the big things he wants to hit on. Do we get any hint anywhere of what kind of civil rights legislation he had in mind? Do we have any idea of what he would have attempted if he had lived? Yeah, I, I don't know if he had any specific legislation in mind, because obviously, you know, he can he can suggest and he can cajole and he can, uh, you know, talk to, to members of Congress about legislation, but he's the president. He doesn't, he doesn't instigate legislation. Right. Right. Um, So I don't know that he had any specific legislation in mind, but certainly, as you say, he did emphasize about a third or so of his inaugural address talks about civil rights. And I learned this recently. I had not done this research um, I, in fact, on, on Twitter, which, you know, you mentioned our, our Twitter handle there at the beginning. Fantastic. Um, thank you. Um, which we're very proud of. And we spent a lot of time and, and, and effort on along with Facebook and Instagram too. Um, uh, we had a, I had a, a tweet from a, a guy who had, uh, worked for Bill Clinton when, when Bill Clinton huh. was president Yeah, and he, he had helped Bill Clinton write speeches and, um, I believe it was it was his second inaugural. He was helping President Clinton on. And he said as part of the research for that for that task, he went back and read basically every inaugural from from Lincoln forward. Wow. And he said that. uh, Other than Lincoln, of course, James Garfield was the only president to talk openly about civil rights in his inaugural address until Lyndon Johnson. Whoa. Um, so, you know, there's a great, there's a great, there's a great yeah, that, sell that's a for, stat. <laughs> for Garfield as well. So, but anyway, so Garfield, you know, spends about a third of his inaugural address talking about civil rights um, and, you know, saying this is an important, you know, he calls it, he calls the, what he calls the, 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 um, the evolution of the, uh, the Negro race from slavery to the full rights of citizenship is the most important uh, change we have known since the implementation of the Constitution. And he talks about how important this has been and, and what a what a major, uh, you know, what, what a major improvement this is to to the life of the country. And it has you know, freed both slave and master from a relationship that enfeebled them both. Um, so he's really, you know, he's taking a, a pretty strong stance on on civil rights. Um, so I'd like to think, again, I don't know that he had any specific legislation in mind, but certainly I think uh, he would have been far more active in, in protecting the voting rights of, of, of the freedmen, and he would have been far more active in promoting uh, and protecting the, the, the physical safety yeah. of, of the formerly enslaved as well in the South. 
Now, you mentioned Benjamin Harrison earlier, you know, a president who eight years later is going to, as I understand it, work pretty dang hard to pass a civil rights bill of his own to protect African-American rights to vote. But he'll be defeated by congressional Democrats. So do you think Garfield would have been any more successful than uh, Harrison was and why? Well, possibly. Yeah. I I mean, I, I don't off the top of my head, recall if if Harrison had a, you know, a Democratic controlled Congress uh, at that point that that or I, I think he actually had a Republican Congress his first okay. couple of years. And then it interesting. Flipped. And he passed all yeah. this other stuff. But that was the one thing where the Democrats really stopped him. Yeah. Um, you know, I, Garfield certainly would have run into a lot of Democratic um, yeah. opposition, certainly. Um, from from because if, if you look at the electoral map from the 1880 election, it's really the first instance of the so-called solid South. Yeah. The South goes completely against Garfield. Yeah. Um, you know, four years earlier during the, the, the Hayes Tilden election of 76, Hayes manages to win three southern states, <laughs> South Carolina, Louisiana, Florida. Yeah, yeah. Which, oh, by the way, happened to be the ones that tipped the tipped the electoral college yeah. in his favor. And that's a whole nother. Uh, you know, interesting, interesting topic that with that election being decided by an electoral commission, which, oh, by the way, James Garfield was a member of that commission. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, Garfield is, you know, definitely willing to be a partisan Republican when he needs to be. And and 1876 is a good example of that. But anyway, if you look at that um, electoral map from 1880, it is a solid South for Winfield Scott Hancock, who's, who's, of course, the Democratic candidate that year, um, that Garfield defeats by, you know, 10,000 popular votes, which is, you know, you know, a portion, you know, a fraction of 1% of the vote. Right. Um, it's a very, very razor thin margin in, in 1880. So the, the South is solidly Democratic. I mean, Democrats have certainly re, re, retaken control in all of those Southern states. Yep. White Southerners have begun to very openly um, move toward restoring white supremacy. Yep. Uh, to intimidating and, and committing violent acts against African-Americans, especially African-American uh, voters. Yep. Um, so I think it's a safe bet that anything Garfield tried to do would have had very strong re- on civil rights, would have had very strong um, opposition from from Democrats and, and certainly from Southern Democrats. So, um, you know, how successful would he have been? I it's hard to say. Right. Um, you know, and, and again, you know, it depends on what the legislation would have been. Sure. Uh, what kind of sort of wheeling and dealing could have been done behind the scenes to, to, to make things happen. One thing I do think Garfield had an advantage uh, over Harrison eight years later was simply Garfield had spent a lot more time in Congress himself. So he was a master of sort of the parliamentary process of Congress, but also uh, had been, you know, the chairman of uh, of of uh, major committees. Right. He knew how the process. Uh, and again, he he's he's comparable in that to maybe to to a Lyndon Johnson, who was just revered as this guy who who just knew the system so well and could make those deals that that would convince people that otherwise would be opposed to vote for things he wanted them to vote for. Um, I think Garfield is to a degree maybe comparable to that in that he was in Congress for so long, you know, 18 years prior to becoming president. And, you know, Harrison, of course, had been a senator, but not he hadn't spent nearly the amount of time in Congress that Garfield had, I don't believe. So I think Garfield had that advantage over Harrison as well, just knowing how the system worked and knowing how to make how to make deals to, to get people to vote the way he wanted them to vote. 
So it's, it's, you know, we, we can't say what he would have done or would have been successful, but had he lived, you know, the civil rights push might have lived for longer, but as it was, it, that was something that was changing. And, and over those last years, 19th century, civil rights goes from being a, a front burner issue to a, a back burner, if it's even on the stove issue. Another change that was happening around that time is, you know, the Republican Party starts to become that kind of party of big business. I was curious, you know, what's your reading of what's going on there? Why is that happening? And do we have any inclination of how Garfield felt about that change? Yeah, you know, Garfield, I mean, obviously, the first thing to know about Garfield is like anybody who manages to become president of the United States, mostly, um, he's a masterful politician. So he, he's <laughs> yeah. very smart. He's very, you know, he can read the public mood very well. And he can also kind of, to some degree, kind of have a sense of the future of where where is the country going and where's the party going. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Garfield was not anti-business by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he in fact, here in, in Ohio, you know, when he was running his front porch campaign in 1880, Many of the people who came to see him, you know, he had groups of people that were were coming here that he would talk to, and several of them were business groups, uh, you know, businessmen from Cleveland, businessmen from Indianapolis, all these different places, um, who wanted to to you know get their concerns in front of this 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 presidential candidate as well. So he was not an anti-business Republican by any means. Um, I think Garfield was a guy who he called himself cursed by being able to see both sides of every issue. So I think, you know, Garfield is a guy who who I think maybe would have said, hey, yes, these these business concerns are important, Mm -hmm. but we can't emphasize these over the the civil rights of 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 the formerly enslaved. So I think Garfield is a guy who, and, and again, being a masterful politician, I think would have been able to maybe keep all of these things uh, going at the same time. Yeah. Um, but, you know, why are the Republicans moving toward biz- big business at this point? Again, as I said at the beginning, they're looking for they're looking for new issues. They're looking for new alliances and they are, are seeing a lot of, uh, you know, wealthy industrialists and financiers who are willing to to help them uh, not only push their agendas, but to help them stay in power. You know, since you mentioned Harris, since we talked a little bit about Harrison, something else to consider is, you know, how the Republicans are very, very sort of on the sly uh, pushing for new states at this point, too. Hey, you know, yeah, yeah. There, there's obviously Garfield isn't president long enough to, to, to right. sign any, you know, to sign legislation admitting any new states. But after Garfield, you know, the Republicans, including during the Harrison years, are very, very, um, uh, I guess I shouldn't say on the slide. They're very overtly trying to bring more and more states mm-hmm. in because that creates more and more uh, Republican state yep. legislatures and more and more Republican members of Congress and the Senate. Um, so, you know, the, how would Garfield have felt about that? I don't know. I mean, he, again, he was not above being a partisan Republican when he needed to be. That 1876 election is a great example of that. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, that's another reason that the Republican Party is really starting to to, to shift and change a little bit in that in that late 19th century, especially after Garfield's death. 
you know, one, one of the other issues that I know is starting to emerge in these decades after the Civil War that you don't see like anything about before is kind of the struggle between labor and management. You know, like you have, say, some great railroad strikes uh, during Hayes administration. You know, you have some more coming later. Do we have any sense of where Garfield fell on that spectrum of, of like favoring management and say supporting the breaking of strikes or supporting labor and you know things that aren't really going to come for decades in terms of labor support. Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, Garfield being Garfield, I think he he probably would have taken each one of those those uh, situations individually and said, well, OK, you know, who's in the right and who's in the wrong. And if there's this major labor strike, for example, who's going to be affected? And, you know, is there some way to bring these two sides together? You know, he was a, a pretty masterful negotiator and mediator. So, you know, I, I don't have a good sense of, oh, he would have favored management every time or he would have favored labor every time. I think it's more a matter of what's the, you know, what is the issue and, and how can it be worked out? And, you know, really who's in the right and who's in the wrong? You know, he, he did, uh, he, he did try to, to, he did have a, a something of a, of a moralistic, um, you know, streak to him, which I think came from his upbringing and from his religious views. Mm -hmm. um, so I, but I do think he also was, was very strong on really what's, what's good for my constituents as when he was a congressman and as president, what is good for the country? And, you know, if that means that, you know, these, these workers in this labor dispute are, are in the right and they should be, you know, they should be uh, accommodated, then, then, great. And if management is right and, and the, these demands are unreasonable, then, then maybe we side with them. So again, I'm speculating here. Totally. Obviously. <laughs> I get to ask all the fun speculative questions here. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to say, but I do think, you know, knowing Garfield, he would have taken each one of those instances and tried to figure out, you know, what is best here. All right. So the, the last area of real kind of struggle and, and change in the GOP, I'd love to dive into with you. Is, is the fight where we very much know where he's going to fall between Roscoe Conkling and James G. Blaine. You know, whether it's at the convention in 1880 or as president, Garfield finds himself right in the middle of a fight between two arguably more powerful Republican politicians, James G. Blaine, who led a faction called the Half-Breeds, and Roscoe Conkling, who led a faction called the Stalwarts. And We've talked in my podcast a bit about how Conkling was all about old school patronage and accumulating power, basically through corruption, while Blaine favored civil service reform. I guess first question is, were there any other areas where those two factions differed that I kind of missed? Or was it really a, a debate about are we going to favor this old school patronage, you know, kickback system? Or are we going to move beyond it? Yeah, I would challenge a little bit of that. I'm not. I don't know that James Blaine was frankly all that concerned about civil service reform. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, and so Blaine had, had very, very uh, regularly during his career in Congress used patronage. Yeah. He was not opposed to the patronage system. James Garfield really had used patronage as well. In fact, I recall at one point he was having this kind of squabble with Ulysses S. Grant when, um, when Grant was, was president and, um, I remember Garfield making a note in his diary about um, he had made a recommend he Garfield had made a recommendation for a postmaster position. <laughs> yeah, it's a patronage yeah. job, you know, yeah. and Grant had appointed someone else. And oh. Garfield was a little ticked off about that. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the major issue, certainly in 1880. Yeah. You know, the half breeds 
do, you know, are, are starting to come around to the idea, eh, you know, this civil service, something's got to be done here. This patronage system is kind of getting a little out of control. Uh, guys like Conkling loved patronage because it made them very powerful. It gave them a way to build a, a, a base and, and to, to have people owe them favors. If, if you had given them their job, you know, they owed you. Um, it allowed the party to be very powerful to do because a lot of times people that were put into these patronage positions were expected to basically kick some of their salary back to the party. I think the major issue there is certainly in 1880, even more so than, than, than civil service reform was simply who is going to be the Republican candidate for president in 1880. The stalwarts were all about having Ulysses S. Grant come back and run again, mm-hmm. which had never been done before. No one had ever sought a third term before. Third term, yeah. And the, the half-breeds, yes, concerned about somewhat about civil service reform, but even more so were, were in very, very direct uh, opposition to Grant or anyone seeking a third term. So the issue was the third term is your sense of it. In 1880, at least, I think that was even more of a dividing line uh, for Republicans between stalwarts and half-breeds. Civil service, James Garfield, you know, really was never all that passionate about civil service reform mm-hmm. until he was really president-elect. Yeah, he kind of read the room. <laughs> yeah, well, he read the room, but also he started to see how much time is being wasted on again, as president-elect and then certainly once he became president as well, is how much time was being, of his time was being wasted on having to meet with people. Because keep in mind, this is the 1880s here. It's not like today where, you know, because of civil service reform, you apply for a job and, and you have to go through a process and you have to be qualified. And, you know, the president of the United States has no idea who I am or that, that I'm in some <laughs> civil service right. job because, you know, I don't have to go stand in a line of people at the White House and beg for a job. Um, the uh, so so Garfield, you know, really started to see, you know, how many people were showing up here at his house when he was president elect and then at the White House when he became president and how many hours a day he had to spend talking to these people and wasting time uh, hearing their concerns and what job they wanted from people who wanted to be, you know, ministers or ambassadors all the way down to people who wanted to be postmasters or, you know, or 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 clerks. They all were expected to be to be seen. And, and um, so that's really when Garfield, I think, started seeing the need for civil service reform. And he makes a note in his diary that, you know, yeah, this is some some reform here is going to be necessary. Um, but in 1880, you know, the really the dividing line between stalwarts and half breeds, they 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 were all Republicans. They all felt had felt strongly at one time or another about abolition, about emancipation, about civil rights even though some of them, again, were starting to kind of, you know, really cool off on civil rights at that point. But the real dividing line there in 1880 was simply who, who's going to be our candidate in 1880. We, the stalwarts, want Grant to come back and run for a third term. We, the half-breeds, say, no, 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 that's totally inappropriate. We don't want that. Oh, and also there were some scandals here and there in the Grant years. We don't want to go back to that. We need somebody else. And that's where Garfield comes in as, as, as a true dark horse compromise candidate in 1880. Yes, Garfield was aligned more with the half-breeds in 1880 because he did not want Grant to run for a third term. Yeah. Got it. Very interesting. 
Um, you write of Garfield. He was the best president we never had. What do you see in him that makes you see that greatness was possible? Well, I mean, I think there's no question he was just based on 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 pure intelligence. He was one of the, the smartest men ever to live in the White House. I mean, he was possibly, you know, genius IQ level, possibly brilliant. Um, you know, he spoke multiple languages. He wrote multiple languages, although I will say the whole, you know, there's this old wives tale about him being able to write Greek and Latin in, you know, simultaneously with two different hands. That's an old wives tale only. That is not true. He could not do that. He could speak both. He could write both, but he couldn't do it at the same time. Um, <laughs> you know, he, 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 he was also, in my view, one of the best prepared men, uh, currently all men, obviously, uh, yeah. to, to ever be president in that he had been, he had done so many different things. He had been a teacher. He had been a college president. He had been a lay minister. He's the only, you know, person who has literally preached the gospel, uh, that has ever then be a later become president. Um, so he's only the only minister to become president. He was in Congress for 18 years. He's a general in the civil war. He's a staunch abolitionist. He's a staunch supporter uh, of civil rights. So I think for me, you know, the best president we never had, I, that is not my, you know, I didn't come up with that phrase. Somebody else did, although I think it's, it's apt. Um, it's simply that I think he was, that the potential uh, was there. He represent, and again, all of these things that he had done that, that led him to be this compromise candidate, uh, to be, in my view, even though he barely won this election in the popular vote, at least, it was pretty decisive in the Electoral College, um, led him to be the person that the Republican Party needed uh, in 1880 and, and really in the person that the country needed in 1880. Uh, all of these things, you know, that led him to, to, to win the, the, the presidency and to become president they represent to me that just that lost potential and, and, and the, the great tragedy of his death. I don't know that he would have been, you know, the, the end all be all for, for civil rights. Um, I think the potential for that was there. Um, you know, circumstances may have overwhelmed him. Some major foreign policy crisis may have come up that he had to deal with. Who knows what would have happened had he lived we know that as a guy who follows him, Arthur, he's going to have to deal with this Chinese Exclusion Act. Yes, a lot of pressure yes. for that, you know. Sure. And, and you know, Arthur is another guy to me that, you know, gets you know, certainly deserves criticism for the for signing the Chinese Exclusion Act, but also deserves some praise for overcoming his own past as a, you know, kind of a Republican Party hack. Yeah. And and, you know, who owes his entire career to patronage and yet, you know, does this complete about face and, and signs the Pendleton Act. You know, I think Arthur is, a, is another fascinating guy who deserves more credit than he gets. Again, gets some criticism that he deserves, but, but totally, also totally. doesn't get enough credit that he does deserve. Um, so, you know, who, who knows where Garfield would have would have gone? I just think that the potential is there, was there for him to be a very strong president. Obviously, you know, we on when we at, at the park where I work, when we are, you know, tweeting or putting things on social media or even doing programming. Yeah, obviously, we 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 emphasize that um, not that Garfield would have been a great president, but that he could 
have been a great president. <laughs> right, he, right. The pot- again, the potential was there. Everything in his background, everything he accomplished in a very short life, really. I mean, he was only 49 when he died. Yeah, he's got an impressive resume. He's one of those guys you read about and you're like, man, I am lazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, I do the same thing. I just think, wow, you know, when he was the age I was, he was, you know, he he was like being elected president. basically. Right. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, it's just the potential, really, yeah. I, I think. And, and so, you know, the best president we never had. Again, that's kind of a, 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 a nice uh, you know, convenient phrase that that somebody else came up with. I don't know who, but I, I you know, it, I do think it represents um, it just speaks to the potential that he had to really be a strong and effective president. What was his most lasting legacy of his, whether it's short administration or life and career? Oh, boy, that's that's a tough one. I mean, I, I, I th- there's there are many. I mean, obviously, kind of based on the conversation we've been having here and a lot of the, the, the stuff that's in the book and, you know, the the, um, the, the civil rights, uh, his belief in civil rights, not only his belief, but him kind of putting his money where his mouth was and, and supporting a lot of civil rights legislation. I think that's a very strong legacy and one that really is 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 one that people don't r- realize about him. Mm. Um which is one of the, you know, one of the things that I think is great about, you know, the, the angle I was able to, to, to take in the book. Um, and, um, you know, I'm not trying to, to, to oversell him as someone who would have been, you know, again, as I said before, the end all be all when it came to, to civil rights. But I do think the right. potential was there certainly for him to really have been very strong and very impactful on that. Um, so that's one of his legacies, I think, to, um it's a sad legacy, but it is a legacy uh, that the, the idea of um, medical care oh, the, yeah. in, in the 19th century. I mean, wash your hands. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, your stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, European doctors by 1881 had really, by and large, accepted Joseph Lister's theories on germs and yep. and the need to 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 use antiseptic surgery. There's a great book out there called The Butchering Art by uh, doc, uh, Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris that talks about Lister and kind of how he developed these theories and how widespread his theories became in Europe. Uh, but certainly by um, by by 1881, a lot of American doctors weren't quite there yet, and they were kind of sticking with the more, you know, blood and gore I have on my, my hands and my, you know, my surgical apron, it just shows how much experience I have. And, you know, um, so I think that's a sad legacy of Garfield's life that, you know, had really, had he been shot even maybe 10 to 15 years later, I think he, he quite possibly could have survived because American doctors had much more widely, um, much more widely accepted germ theory at, at that point. Um, so that's a legacy of his as well. And again, it's, it's a sad one. And then some of the, the other legacies um, for people who come to our site in, in Ohio, um, they, you know, when they, when they get to, t- we take them through the Garfield home, um, they see a home that, you know, looks very different than when he lived here. And, and one of the things that we show them is this beautiful memorial library that his wife, his mm-hmm. widow, Lucretia, uh, Lucretia Rudolph Garfield, built onto the back of this house several, a few years after his death. And it turns out that, in fact, what this library is not only is a beautiful room, a beautiful addition to this house, um, it's also where the idea of presidential libraries was born. 
that's an awesome legacy. And, and yeah. it's to Lucretia's credit. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Lucretia, I, you know, I think maybe that's another legacy of Garfield's is for, for, for all of us in the world that have definitely married up. <laughs> I'm definitely, <laughs> I definitely count myself among those, uh, you, you know, um, his, his, his wife was also uh, a really, really fascinating person, fiercely intelligent, um, very, even though she was, you know, she reminds me of Abigail Adams in some ways and that mm. she has very strong opinions mm -hmm. that she shares privately with him. Of course, she doesn't speak out publicly yet. She's still a woman of the 19th century. Yeah. But, um, you know, she, she's also in her own right, uh, very, very interesting. And she becomes very, you know, uh, one of her, the goals of her life after his death is to, is to keep his memory and his legacy alive. And so she builds this beautiful library and lo and behold, it's where the idea for presidential libraries comes from. So I think that's one of, it's one of her legacies and one of his as well. I've got one last question for you. You mentioned Garfield has all this experience, congressman, general, president for a bit, you know, all these things. When you look through all that, what lessons in leadership do you think we can learn from him? Wow, that's a great question. Um, and, and again, there there are so many. I, I think you know, embracing you know varied experiences is really important. Um, you know, not everybody needs to be a general or needs to be you know a a, a, a member of Congress for for forty years or something. Um, it doesn't mean their ideas don't have value if they're mm -hmm. they're running for higher office, for example. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. But um, you know embracing varied experience. I think, um, you know, being true to who you are, I think is valuable as well. Um, you know, Garfield could have been one of those guys that kind of turned his back on civil rights, uh, you know, as he moved towards, towards the presidency, he didn't do that. And it's just because it, he, he was a very strong believer in this cause and, uh, and, and, and stayed true to that, even when many of his colleagues were starting to kind of, again, move on to, to other things and looking for other, for other issues that would help them. So, you know, I, I think, uh, I think Garfield is just a, a very, he's an underappreciated figure in American history. I, I, I recognize that um, he's not ever going to rise to the level of an Abraham Lincoln or a George Washington, yeah. you know, I, I'm, and I'm not suggesting that he should, we just right. don't have the, the data there to tell us that he should, you know, I, I often will, you know, say on, you know, on Twitter or things like that, that, you know, I think had he lived and, and served a full term or two, um, he, uh, he, he may, maybe he would have cracked the top 10, you know, with the, the new C-SPAN list just yeah. came out, uh, yeah. you know, a month or so ago of presidential greatness. I was very happy to see Garfield went from 29 to 27 this time. Hey. <laughs> I think that's pretty darn good for a guy who was really only in office for four months before he was shot. Yeah. Um, you know, so that means there's, you know, there's over a dozen presidents below Garfield, many, most of whom served a full term or two sometimes that, that, you know, historians think Garfield was better than um, that's pretty impressive. So, you know, I think he could only move up had he lived to serve a full term or two. The, the other leadership lesson, I guess I would take from Garfield is, is, you know, be willing to, to change your opinions, be willing to grow, be willing mm -hmm. to listen to what other people have to say. And, and I think the best example of that is, you know, it's, it's fairly well known among people that are interested in Garfield that, you know, he, he was not always very happy with Abraham Lincoln. Um, you know, it today, you know, every, almost everybody, including historians rightfully reveres Abraham Lincoln. Um, 
you know, I mean, he's again, think about that C-SPAN ranking. He's Lincoln is always at the top. He's always number one. And, you know, sometimes you see other other polls that put him at number two below Washington. Lincoln and Washington will always be one and two, we'll say. Um, Washington may sometimes jump above Lincoln, but for the most part, it's Lincoln than Washington. And and, and that makes sense to me uh, as a historian. Um, But, you know, Garfield during the Civil War, when he was both in the army and also in Congress, um, was very frustrated with Lincoln sometimes. You know, Garfield Garfield wrote a great letter, one of my favorite letters to quote, two days after the attack on Fort Sumter. Uh, so April 14th, 1861, he writes this letter to a friend, and he says, the war will soon assume the shape of slavery and freedom. Right. The, war, the world will so understand it, and I believe the outcome will redound to the good of humanity. So here's a guy who in 1861 recognizes already immediately upon the beginning of the civil war. Okay. It's really all about slavery. Yeah. We Historians. We know that now, yeah. regardless of the fact that some people don't want to, to go down that road or don't want to admit it. Yeah. There's a lot of sort of ancillary issues, but they really all can be traced back to being related to the issue of slavery, economics, the constitution, whatever you, you would, what have you. It's really all about slavery. And, and Garfield recognizes that. And he's so furious that Lincoln won't come out and say that same thing. Mm. He's so irritated that Lincoln won't make emancipation uh, of, of, of enslaved people. Emanci- he won't make abolishing slavery part of what the union is really fighting for. Yes, he eventually does that with the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, and you know Garfield makes this sort of uh, you know, snarky comment in his diary when the, when the Emancipation Proclamation finally comes out, yeah. where he says, you know, strange that a second rate Illinois lawyer should be the instrument of this this wonderful uh, this wonderful proclamation. So, Ouch. you know, he, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was pretty he was pretty harsh. So he 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 didn't always agree with Lincoln. However, and here's the leadership lesson that it's taken me you know ten minutes to get to here, and I apologize. <laughs> Later. You know, certainly after Lincoln is killed and, and, and Garfield spends more and more time in Congress, he comes to recognize that, you know what, Lincoln knew what he was doing all along. He was pretty smart. Garfield came to see the genius of Abraham Lincoln. And by the time he himself, Garfield, becomes president, he, of course, is singing the praises of Abraham Lincoln. So the lesson there is simply be willing to listen to what other people have to say, be willing to, to change your views, uh, be willing to see both sides. I mentioned earlier, you know, Garfield literally called himself cursed because he could see both sides of every issue. And that can be hard for a politician sometimes when you need to take a, to take a, a stand. Yeah. So, you know, but be willing also to evolve uh, in how you think, and, and I think Garfield's sort of um, evolution on how he felt about Lincoln is, is a good example of that. If you'd like to hear more from Todd, please check out his book, The Last Lincoln Republican, The Presidential Election of 1880. Visit the James A. Garfield National Historic Site in Mentor, Ohio, and give at Garfield NPS a follow on Twitter. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Todd. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. It's good to hear from y'all. 
You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash histories. This helps me write books and pay to host the show. And thank you so much to everyone who has contributed so far. The music on today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Olgar Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, I'll talk to UNC historian Claude Clegg on the history of Barack Obama. That's right. We are jumping out of order to talk about Obama, his legacy, American race relations, and the challenges and opportunities of writing contemporary history. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.